Hi everyone, I'm Glenn Gao, CEO of Crimson Marketing. Welcome to Moneyball for Marketing, where we talk about the incredible changes happening in marketing organizations around big data and marketing technology. We feature marketing technology insights from the top marketers in the world. The reference to Moneyball is from the story of how the Oakland A's baseball team were able to win and win and win because they figured out how to use data and technology to their advantage. If you'd like to learn about how to use big data and marketing technology and marketing to help you win, visit us at crimsonmarketing.com or email us at info at crimsonmarketing.com. And now on to our podcast. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Jonathan Martin, the CMO of Pure Storage. Jonathan is responsible for all global marketing and brand, overseeing all of marketing communications, events, demand gen, and field and channel marketing. So how does Pure Storage describe themselves? Pure Storage's disruptive, software-driven, all-flash storage technology combined with a customer-friendly business model, drives business and IT transformation for customers through dramatic increases in performance and efficiency at lower costs. So Jonathan, it's great to have you here. Hey Glenn, great to be here too. You and I were talking earlier about how people are being overwhelmed with information and how there's a real challenge for marketers because no one is listening anymore. Tell us your perspective on that and what we should be doing about that as marketers. Totally. So um, I think, you know, obviously we're, we're a technology company or a B2B company. And we talk a lot in technology, talk a lot in Silicon Valley about how we're in one of the biggest transitions of technology as people move off traditional kind of client server environments into a world that, that is consumed by social, mobile and, and big data. So it's very, obviously very, very exciting transition. But I think if you're in marketing, we're probably in the middle of an even bigger transition. I'd actually conjecture to say that we're probably in one of the biggest transitions of the last century. Okay, that's a big statement. That is, it, it is a big statement and it, it, it is, a, I think, a huge, huge change for us. And, and to me, that, that change is really in the way that the organizations are doing marketing. I think in, in the last century or so, everyone has really been doing or every, every kind of technique that we've done has been based around a, a single concept. And I'd call that that single concept, the interrupt, which means I, I'm going to find a way, whatever it may be, to get for a moment in time to get you to pay attention to me. Right. And in that moment, I, I'm going to tell you something. And if I can tell you something, if I can get your attention for enough times during the day, if I can get enough frequency, and if I can interrupt enough people during the day, so if I can get enough reach, then slowly over a period of time, my ideas end up becoming your ideas. So, so really everything that we've done for, for a very, very long time, decades and decades and decades, is really just finding new ways to interrupt people, whether that be you know, the email blast, whether that be telemarketing, whether that be trying to engage you at an event. Yeah. So, so, so um, what's the new paradigm? 
Yeah, so, so so the interesting kind of thing with that is that if you look at a lot of, of the the kind of the neuromarketing research around around what's going on here, people are beginning to see a chemical change in the brain. All of these interrupts are causing the what we call the, the fight or flight mechanism for the, the neuroscientists right. that, that are listening or the cognitive psychologists that are listening. Um, are, and that, that fight or flight mechanism is being triggered just continually. So what you're finding is that uh, because of that, all of your marketing interrupts are being screened out by the limbic brain and being stopped getting up to the, the neocortex for further processing. And I always like to do a, a little example if I'm a, at, a, at a presentation or I'm speaking at a conference. I ask everyone in the room to, who, you know, who, asked, who watched television last night? And about half the audience will, will, will own up and put their hand up. And of those people, then I say, keep your hand up if you can remember the commercials. And everyone always, apart from that one person who's like, hey, I remember the gecko. Everybody kind of puts their hand down. And that's either because they're screening through the, uh, the commercials or the brain is, is actively screening them out. So if you're a marketing person, that's a pretty scary concept that a lot of the, the ways that we've done marketing having been based on this interrupt are, are going to become less and less and less effective because the brain is screening things out. Right, because uh, we have too much coming in and the brain can only process so much. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely spot on. So tell us then, um, if interrupt marketing isn't going to work, what will work? Okay, so I think that there's, there's a, a couple of things that, that be, begin to spin up here. And there's a couple of other pieces probably almost to the story. So, so the fir first, what, first or the ne next kind of piece of the story in terms of the, the challenges that face us is, is around things like the, the buyer's journey, right? So um, again, Traditionally, anybody that's been to, to, been to business school, anyone that's studied marketing, anyone that's done sales will, sales will have learned about the, the sales and marketing funnel. It's beautifully lin, linear journey that, that buyers go on. And I'd probably suggest, as probably most people do, that maybe the journey's never really been as linear as, as we'd expect. Right. But today, I think whether you're buying um, a consumer product or whether you're buying a, a B2B product, like one of the ones from, from Pure Storage, um, the way that you buy is is changing quite quite significantly. Uh, what, there was a great survey kind of this time last year from from Google Shopping who did some research on three thousand people buying an individual product, and they found those three thousand people finding three thousand different ways of of purchasing that product. Now that they're going through the same kind of hubs, they're reading you know the same product reviews, they're checking out. The, the same websites, they're, they're reading the same reports, but they're stringing to the, them together in, in a completely unique way. Mm -hmm. So the buyer's journey is really becoming so complex that it, it's, it's becoming really, I'd say it's, it's kind of too complex for, for human brains to be able to, to model anymore. And right. I think, you, you know, this is why you're seeing the explosion in, in big data. This is why you're seeing, seeing the explosion in, in analytics and predictive analytics. Uh, to, uh, to allow machines to help with, with learning and exploring that, that journey. Right. Um, because there's so many different data points that happen in the buyer's journey, and there's so many different pathways, as you said. That's pretty amazing that there would be 3,000 different pathways for 3,000 different people. So the, the numbers become too big now for a human. For free human, yeah, for a human to model, and I think you know people are looking to to machines, and in particular to machine learning, to to help 
uh, with, with modeling that. So, that, so those are, the, I think, two, two of the big challenges. It's probably, a, which is, is you know, n- num- number one, the traditional kind of interrupt-based methods are working less and less and less effectively. The second one is the buyer's journey is becoming so complex. I think that the third challenge that, that we face today is really around uh, the, our ability to control our message going into the market. So certainly for, for me, the last, you know, the first 15 years of my career, that the... the it was relatively straightforward or, was a, or there was a well-trodden path for how you controlled the, your message going into the market. And that was really if you could control your message going to the media, if you could control your message going to the industry analysts, the gardeners and the foresters of the world, if you could control your message going to the investment community, then effectively you were able to control your, your message going into the market. And then, unfortunately, this darn thing called social media came along and you know blew the doors off off of that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so today, you know, you find these these people turning up with with huge followings of thousands and thousands of people who had very very vocal opinions for for both good and not so good if you're if you're a vendor on your products, your services, how you engage with their customers, et cetera, et cetera. So, increasingly, I think that the third challenge is for. Uh, for, for, for marketing organizations to, to reconfigure the, the way that they think about how do they co-create a, a message with, with their audience um, and use that to find new ways to go and engage them. So those are, I think, probably the three challenges. I, I, one- I like that phrase, co-create. I was thinking of uh, the phrase influence or the word influence, um, but I like co-create better because there is influence, but ultimately whoever receives that influenced communication from you has to absorb it and use it um, in their own way yeah, for it to I, really be uh, effective. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you, you take it down to, to yourself, you take it down to the individual. So I'm a, I'm a huge, huge motorcycles guy. Um, and I'm very passionate about a couple of brands of, of motorcycles. I love uh, KTM motorcycles. I love BMW motorcycles. And if KTM or BMW, if they email me, if they send me something on Facebook, if they tweet me, uh, you know, I am going to read religiously every single one of those things. But despite the fact that I'm a motorbike guy, if Harley Davidson does that, then I'm probably not interested because it's not my kind of motorcycle. It's a different kind of demographic, different kind of rider. Right. And I, uh, then I will take all of that information that I get from, from BMW and then I fuse it with my point of view and my perspective and my data points. And I then bring that into my conversation. So I then tweet about my thoughts, my feelings, my loves, hates, desires and wants around kind of the, those kind of brands of motorcycles. So I think the, the ability to, to, as you said, to, to influence the conversation, to engage, to give people data points and interesting, interesting things, and then allow them to infuse that with their points of view, their thoughts, their ideas, to, to evolve the, the story further and go, have them go evangelize that out to, to other people that are passionate about similar things. So let's bring this a little bit into the realm of data and technology. Yeah. So you talked about tweeting, and you have used the phrase with me earlier, uh, digital breadcrumbs. That implies to me we can track things, we can, we can understand digital things. Um, how do you think about the way to track that data, that information, what do we, and what do we as marketers do with that? Yeah, so I think that's the, probably the, the silver lining. We've, we've talked a lot about the things that are going sideways at the moment. I think one of the things that is most interesting 
is, as you said, this, this as people are engaging, as they're going through their journey, increasingly that journey today is, is digital. Um, people are, they're going to your website, they're giving kind of thumbs up and thumbs down on, on, uh, on blogs. They are tweeting and retweeting and commenting. They're going on review sites and, and giving th things, you know, a rating out of five stars. And the, the opportunity for, for marketing people is to take the, the data that, that you own, so all your clickstream data, all your historical sales data, your services data, your support data, your telemetry data, and, and blend it with this very, very rich set of, of digital breadcrumbs. If you're able to kind of collate that in a certain way, it allows you to build incredibly rich and deep psychographic profiles in a way that has just never been possible um, in history marketing before. So I think it's a, a whole new kind of panacea, a whole new vista. And if you're a, a marketing person, or particularly if you're a, a CMO, I think this really changes uh, your perspective on, you know, how you go about the role, where you focus your time in the role. You know, the good old days, the, the CMO used to stand, I think, for the, the chief megaphone officer for the organization. <laughs> right, right. Now, obviously, being, uh, being vocal, being out there, being creative are all, you know, st still incredibly important to, to a chief marketing officer. But I, I think getting a, a deeper understanding of customers, customer buying behavior, really becoming the advocate for customers within your organization will be a bigger piece of, of the CMO role. Now, you asked also the second part of the question there was really around, what, like, what do you do with this data? Exactly. I, I think that the, the equation that, that all CMOs, all organizations over the next four or five years are going to try and be solving is, is something along the lines of this. The first thing is you need to understand context, like where is somebody in, in their journey based on, on, uh, on, on data, on profiles that you've seen of other individuals individuals before, where do you believe this individual is in their journey? Are they purely doing just, you know, educational research? Are they in purchase consideration for mode? Are they getting references and referrals? Like, where are they in their journey? Secondly, once you understand co the context of where they are, can you predictively determine what are they most likely to do next? Can you determine their intent? So if you can understand context, like where they are in the journey, if you can understand their intent, the thing that they're most likely to do next, and here's the rub, if you can do those two things in real time, so the ability to do real time or as near real time processing, super, super important over the next few years, that allows you to place highly targeted, highly personalized offers right in front of the person at the right time in their journey. Now, that sounds like nirvana to me, given the story earlier about 3,000 different uh, pathways to purchase. So I would imagine there's a lot of machine learning that has to come into this and a lot of automation that has to come into this. Can, can you talk about what you're doing in the area of uh, what, what technologies you're using to, to drive this? Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, we've done done a couple of different things kind of in, in my career. I definitely advocate all, if uh, all, everyone, everyone listening, if they are vaguely interested in this, go look and, at building some kind of marketing science lab within your organization. So a lot of people talk about kind of data scientists and bringing data scientists in. Just in, in my experience, I, I really found that, that, that a data scientist isn't an individual. It's actually kind of two people. It tends to be the, the pairing 
of a, a model, a programmer type of person. Obviously, you can imagine what, what, what they might look like and pairing that person with a, a deep statistician. And I think once you build, put the model, a programmer together with the statistician, then you're able to, to, uh, to get a, a data scientist. So data scientist is a pairing. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. So, so, um, so once you've kind of, Said, yep, we're going to go. You know, get get those two two headcount to go go get the quote unquote the data scientist. The the second one is beginning to bring together the content that, that you own. Now we we are uh, we've been around about about six years. We're going through incredibly uh, fast growth um, at the moment. So the last quarter we grew at about 160, uh, 160% year, year on year. But even for us, we're using kind of 18 to 20 different systems. So we're using salesforce.com, we're using Marketo, we're using Lattice Engines, Lean Data, Facebook, lots and lots of different systems. And I, I always get a bit, a bit jealous of salespeople when I go into my quarterly business reviews and the, the salespeople, you know, you ask the salespeople, so how did, how did the quarter go? And they're able to go to this one system called Salesforce.com, and they're able to give you all these beautiful charts and everything else about what happened in sales. Uh-huh. If, if you're in marketing, then modeling um, and being able to report on, quote, unquote, what's happening in marketing tends to be a lot more complex uh, because of the number of systems that, that we're using. And because the data is often spread out amongst a number of different systems. Absolutely. Many, many, many different systems. So, so I think for, for us um, in, in the kind of the stage of, of evolution that, that we're at, the first thing was to really like, cross the full marketing mix. You know, every, everything for, from tw- Twitter all the way through to, you know, the number of impressions that our case studies are getting. Like get an understanding of what the rear view mirror looks like. So can I correlate all of these different data sets, bring them into, into one location and be able to understand how the world was, you know, a week ago, if not an hour ago, if not a second ago. And traditionally, you had to do that by building this, you know, huge set of infrastructure internally to do that. There's increasingly, there's a, a number of third parties that are out there doing all of this aggregation of, of content for you. But the market is still early. Um, but we, we're working with a um, a couple of organizations, an organization maybe like Beckon or organizations like Good Data that sure. allow you to, to do this aggregation of lots and lots and lots of different content. So they take away the pain of plugging all the pipe work together, doing all the normalization of the data, cl- making sure all the data is clean and allows us to spend our time on uh, more you know, higher value activities like actually doing the analytics on the data itself. Good. So tell us about um, doing, doing some of that analytics to predict the future. Yeah. So, so, so that's, you know, if, if kind of phase one is really being able to accurately reflect historically what, what's happened, phase two is really being able to use the data that you have to predict future buying behavior or future events. So fi- how can you take the, the activities that nine people exhibit and are allowing the data that you collect from those nine people to predict what the 10th is going to do? So increasingly, this is, is where we've spent our time more recently, being able to, to take, um, uh, take, take all of this data and begin to build very, very targeted uh, very, very focused activities. So rather than doing, you know, the 
the 100,000 person spammogram to, to everybody in your database. Mm-hmm. How do we go segment the database down to you know, maybe 1,000 individuals? How do we go make cluster those 1,000 individuals together around a very similar kind of buying behavior and buying criteria? And then how do you target them through all channels with very, very specific messaging? And, and the, the, the outcome it is dramatically, dramatically different. So I, it always makes me laugh that, that somehow marketing people have managed to convince themselves that a 2% success rate is success at all. Yeah, right, right. Um, and we're all like high-fiving and back-slapping when we, when we hit 2%. Like, you know, if you, you're a brain surgeon with a 2% success rate, then I'd suggest that you probably wouldn't be a brain surgeon for, <laughs> for very long. But um, in marketing, we've managed to convince ourselves that's right. If you, you begin to use these more predictive techniques, you begin to do kind of a clustering, you begin to do much more personalized uh, offers, we, we've seen that success rate go from 2% all the way up to 60%. So dramatically, dramatically uh, impactful uh, and also uh, very, very cost effective because you no longer have to spend all the money spamming 100,000 people right. to 1,000 that are going to provide high return. Well, we're going to we're going to wrap up here in a second, but I just wanted to make a comment that uh, we often mention to our clients that they should bring in fewer leads in the top of the funnel. And that's often a very hard thing for them to think through. But uh, to your point, if I can get a 60 percent response rate, I'm going to be extremely targeted. I'm going to put have put in a lot of effort to make sure my message is exactly the right message for whoever I'm targeting. That's how I'm going to get a response rate. And I'm going to be uh, ultimately, um, I'm assuming, ultimately my ROI is going to go through the roof. Absolutely. So totally counterintuitive. Um, takes a bit of a leap of faith to go do that. But I think the, uh, the results speak for themselves. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. I've enjoyed learning from you and I appreciate your time. Great to be here. Thanks for your time. Okay. Talk to you soon. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can also go to our website, crimsonmarketing.com, and sign up for our free monthly newsletter featuring the very best of our marketing insights, featured Moneyball for Marketing podcasts, and one of our favorite features called Bad Marketing. Or email me at info at crimsonmarketing.com. Thanks for listening to Moneyball for Marketing from Crimson Marketing. Have a great week and let us know if we can help you in any way.